Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You'll notice that's not our regular music. That is the music of Henry Purcell from the 17th century. We're going to talk about Purcell, Dido, and Aeneas, which is being performed this week. Three performances on the USU campus. Utah State University Opera is presenting the uh, the uh, great work uh, on April 19th, 20th, and 21st. That's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thursday and Friday uh, performances at 7.30 p.m., the Saturday performance at 2 p.m., all in the Morgan Theater on the USU uh, campus in Logan. Uh, this program is part of USU's Year of the Arts. We're going to talk about Dido and Aeneas, related topics, and then uh, see where the conversation takes us. And uh, Professor Christopher Shear from uh, USU uh, says that Dido and Aeneas is one of the great works in the operatic canon, one of the most frequently performed of 17th century operas. He goes on to say that the opera's music is in a style that demands a special approach and historical understanding, which is why uh, he brought in a special guest music director, Nicholas Kramer, and personal scholar and Syracuse University professor Amanda Eubanks-Winkler as a dramaturg, and, uh, and she's giving uh, talks ahead of each of these uh, performances. And uh, we have those two uh, people in studio with us today. Nicholas Kramer is one of the leading interpreters of pre-1750 music working today's magisterial list of engagements with orchestras and festivals around the world, including as principal guest conductor of Music of the Broke Chicago. Nicholas Kramer, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Amanda Eubanks-Winkler is one of the leading scholars of 17th century English musical drama. She's published books, articles, and critical editions on this topic. She's currently participating in an international project entitled Performing Restorations Shakespeare. For this production, she's acted as the historical consultant. We'll also be giving pre-concert talks an hour before each performance. Amanda Eubanks-Winkler, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So um, this is 17th century music, and uh, Nicholas Kramer, you've been involved in 17th century music, expanding forward to uh, to more recent uh, centuries as well. Uh, what is it that attracts you to this music? Goodness. Oh, um, yeah, have we got an hour? Um, <laughs> the thing is... We do have an hour, yes. Yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing about 17th century music is that to our modern ears, uh, to our sort of contemporary ears, it seems more advanced than 18th century music. And... Um, there is there was this feeling in the 17th century that uh, they were bound by fewer rules. Um, so we hear we hear what we think. You know, we hear some Purcell, we hear Matthew Locke, we hear um, I mean, even Monteverdi and Gesualdo. I mean, going further back, and we think, oh, how modern this is. And why do we think it's modern? Because we associate dissonance, in other words, discords, with what we sort of experienced in the 20th century. And then along came Handel and Bach and, you know, like a great Baroque Hoover came and swept all the dissonances away. And uh, and not that Handel and Bach didn't, uh, didn't incorporate dissonance. Of course they did. But, you know, the, the, the idea of these, this very sort of... Um, spicy harmony was part of the language of the 17th century and you come across this just everywhere and i have a special affection for purcell because it's it's instantly recognizable i mean he, he was he was a sort of towered above in the late 17th century he was uh, he towered above the others um and i still delight in the in his harmonies i mean one one sort of slightly technical thing is that he wrote orchestrally he wrote um genuine four-part harmony uh, which means that the violas the the tenor line is just the most interesting you go into the 18th century and well Handel particularly was really uh, a three part writer he didn't really write viola parts he, he just wrote a part that was happened to be left fill, you know he just filled in what, what what nobody else was playing I mean it, it, it sounds a bit dry all this but actually in the end you find that you can hear this in the richness of the harmony of the 17th century and particularly Purcell. Mm. Amanda Eubanks-Winkler, uh, you're giving pre-concert talks. What, uh, how do you put Dido and Aeneas in context for 
the audiences who will be coming? Well, one of the things that I'm going to talk about is that if you're working with Dido and Aeneas, you have to be comfortable with a certain degree of ambiguity um, because of the source situation for Dido. There's a lot of bits that are missing and a lot of things that we don't know. Um, and so the work that we're going to be performing at USU, Dido and Aeneas, is something that in a certain sense, as it is always the case when you're performing, it's a reconstruction um, because there are parts that are missing. Um, the earliest sources for Dido and Aeneas, manuscript sources, are from the 18th century, well after Purcell's death. So there's a lot we don't know. Another interesting thing about Dido is the one thing that we are certain of is that it was performed at a girls' school in Chelsea. And so think, thinking through the implications of these girls performing it, and usually girls at these boarding schools would have been anywhere between the age of seven um, all the way into their kind of late teens, um, depending on when they left the school, usually to get married. <laughs> mm. um, so it's interesting to think through the implications of these girls performing that um, sometime probably before the summer of 1688. Mm. 1680s. So uh, for modern audiences, some of them anyway, that, that, that's a big gap. That's a, uh, for some, it's a vast chasm. And eyes glaze over for some. I, I don't know if you, I guess if you're going to come to the concert, to come to the opera, then you you want to bridge that gap. Uh, what, you mean in terms of uh, putting it across to a, an audience yeah. that isn't used to it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's any problem with that, actually. I think it's uh, incredibly accessible music. Purcell, that, that is the point about Purcell. Uh, you, you know, you hear the lament, okay, that's the most famous part of it. And I mean, somebody would have to be very hard-hearted not to respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's completely universal. And there's, you know, I mean, the, the, the Brits have to be pretty ashamed because since between Purcell and Elgar there really isn't anybody to to um, to rival them um, and I you know so we we grab Purcell as our as our national hero um, well m musicians do um, he is a sort of com a musician's composer rather than a um, I mean people all know Dido and they know it because of the lament but there's so much else in there mm -hmm. that that we that we need to focus on. Well, let's seize upon that. I have uh, we have uh, Dido's lament queued up. Let's <laughs> hear part of this. Um, uh, first, I, I want to give you Professor Shear's synopsis of the opera. Um, Dido is queen of Carthage, has fallen in love with the Trojan Aeneas, who is uh, briefly waylaid in fulfilling his destiny to found Rome. The evil sorceress hates Dido and succeeds in separating the lovers. Dido dies from being lovesick, though not before singing one of the most famous arias in operatic history, When I Am Laid in Earth. Uh, so let's hear at least part of, uh, of Dido's lament. By the way, this is uh, a recording featuring St. James singers, uh, St. James Baroque players, uh, Ivor Bolton, and uh, our Dido, in this case, I believe, is uh, Della Jones.
there's uh, the the great aria. It's it's as you said, Nicholas Kramer. You'd have to be <laughs> have a heart of stone to not be uh, affected by that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's timeless. That's the thing. I mean, it doesn't sort of necessarily belong to any period in a way that a, a lot of Bach's be- best music is too. Um, and Handel too. I mean, like Messiah, you'd think of Messiah as, as iconic in this, and uh, Dido's Lament, and Dido itself, and then the whole the whole opera is, has has that stature. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? That, uh, that, that this, a lot of the Baroque is very specific to the period, but the, the Messiah and, and Dido are, are not. It's it's this. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so direct. It's so direct that it uh, has this complete, uncluttered emotional appeal that I don't think, uh, yeah, that, that that could really ha- has to appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, um, Amanda Winkler, the, the, this this would have been, the original performance would have been Schoolgirls. Well, we're not sure. <laughs> That's a point of great debate mm-hmm. among scholars. Um, for a long time, it was thought that it was a first performance at the um, school in Chelsea. It was run by this dancing master, Josiah's priest. But um, in uh, the 1980s, a libretto was discovered um, for Venus and Adonis, which was another similar work. And that had been performed at Josiah's priest school after it was performed at court. So then scholars began to think, well, perhaps Dido was originally intended for court as well. So far, no evidence has turned up of a court performance of, of Dido. There's no paper trail for that, which, if there had been one, is actually quite unusual for court performances. Generally speaking, there is at least payment records or something mm. to tell you that there was a court performance. Still, many scholars have written excellent articles arguing that there was a court performance and using all different kinds of evidence to try to prove that. Um, but what we do know for sure is that it was performed at the boarding school in Chelsea. And more recently, a scholar, Brian White, found a letter from Aleppo. Um, It's a wonderful early music article in which he details this finding. Roland Sherman was a merchant with um, this company of traders, and he he was writing back home to his friend James Piggott, and he said, I would really like to have a copy of that symphony in C minor that was made for preschool in Chelsea mm. and, and, and for the ball at preschool in Chelsea. And so Brian really persuasively puts together a case that this was a reference to Dido and Aeneas. And, uh, and so if so, that opens up the possibility because he says it was made for the school at Chelsea. Well, if it was made for that, then maybe it was made specifically for the school. And indeed, um, in a recent book project that I'm just completing, I found evidence of this being an ongoing practice, uh, that there were all of these works that were actually first performed at schools. Mm. So if that were the case, then Dido is actually part of a much longer tradition of school-based performance. Mm. Just to follow up to that, why were they being... uh why was the first performance in schools? Why Why is that? Well, in some cases, um, what they would do is they wanted to show off. It's kind of similar to high school musicals today, right? Yes. They wanted to it's show off. be very off. high quality high school musicals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted, well, sometimes yes, sometimes yeah. no. Yeah. I found letters, which sometimes things went horribly wrong, you mm. know. So sometimes the girls or the boys, because it happened for, at schools for boys as well, they couldn't quite come through, you know, just like kids today sometimes you rehearse and it doesn't sort of work in in the in their spring musical but um yeah, so what ha- would happen is that they, it was a way of advertising the school and the kinds of uh, accomplishments that students could glean by attending these schools. Look, our students can dance, they can sing. And in the case of women, this was particularly important because these accomplishments could help them find a good marriage match mm-hmm. because that was considered to be an important skill in the home that you had these set of accomplishments. You could play for guests, you could sing for guests, you could organize entertainments in your home. And so it was a way of demonstrating those things. And we know that potential suitors would sometimes attend these performances as well. Um, wow, that's a, that's a high-stakes audition. I, it's I guess, worth yeah. mentioning also, and Amanda, you could expand on this, um, 
that opera in England really didn't exist uh, much. I mean... In our modern sense it, it, of the word. Exactly. So, I mean, it, in Italy it was expanding. Um, but really, uh, Dido was the only opera that Purcell wrote. I mean, real opera. In the modern sense the of modern what sense. we think. So opera being a through completely sung entertainment. So it wouldn't probably... Um, would it not have been acceptable at court to have um, commissioned an opera from Purcell? I mean, how how did that work? Hmm. Well, there were a lot of there was a lot of jockeying for position, and there were at court during this period. So we're talking the 1670s, 1680s. So there were a group of people. Um, Charles II famously loved French music, <laughs> yeah. and so there were a group of people who were really advocating for taking a French musical approach. Um, the kind of uh, big example of that is Albion and Albanius, um, which was written by the playwright John Dryden. He was using kind of this older mask style with allegorical characters. But when they chose the composer, did they choose poor Matthew Locke, this wonderful English composer, to write it? No. They chose this guy, Louis Grabu, who was a Catalan composer, but he'd been trained by Lully, um, the French composer Lully. And so there was this contest about who was going to get the gig. Now, Purcell was already, he had positions at court, but by the time that Dido would have been performed, they were reducing the court musical establishment, Mm -hmm. if you believe that it was, even if it was intended for James II, they were reducing the court musical establishment. So in the late 1680s, Purcell was looking for other things to do. He was underemployed at court. And so that's when he started really writing for the theater in earnest. And he wrote for other schools as well. Did he? Um, he wrote for Madewell's Academy. Um, he, he, was, he was a gigging musician, just like musicians mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. He cobbled together all of these different gigs. And Purcell was no different, particularly after his job at court was being reduced and he didn't have as much to do. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you know the because it they they reach iconic status and then you and you could have this mistaken idea that everything was smooth sailing. Was smooth yes, sailing of course. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he was he was a he was a prodigy as well because he wrote he started composing very in his teens, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, the most famous set of uh, vile consort music comes from Purcell, I mean, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and he wrote that when he was 21. I mean, mm. we know that because each one is dated. Mm-hmm. It actually says the day of the month that in he his completed. In his file manuscript. Yes, yes wow. in June, um, 80, what was it, something like 72, June 72. So he was, yeah, 23. Mm. So, I mean, um, and then, of course, he... We haven't even mentioned that he's he was one of the foremost church composers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wasn't he organist at uh, Westminster Abbey mm-hmm. as well? He was, yeah. For a long time. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. And the thing about him, too, is that you can hear some of the influence of his church music writing definitely in the way he approaches some of the choruses in Dido and mm-hmm. some of his other works. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses some of the same kinds of tricks as he uses in his anthems mm-hmm. in some of the choruses. There's also a heavy French influence in some of the choruses. Yes. As well. Yeah. Before we go to break, and when we come back from break, I want to talk about uh, how how you come in and prepare musicians, Nicholas Kramer. Do you, you have a short amount of time? How do you how do you do that? You've also written in the Guardian uh, newspaper about El Sistema, Venezuela's yeah. system, and they were, they, I guess they were trying to import that. And you were saying you were saying beware, it can work, but you really have to jump in with both feet. But before we do that and we go to break, uh, I'm curious. You said you got Purcell. Then you got a long period, and then you have Elgar, and it, this happens in other nations as well. That I, I think. What do you think? Why is that? Is it the climate? Uh, is it is it the politics? Is it the, or is it just that genius pops up just every once in a while? I think that is probably it. But also, um, you know, if, for instance, if Handel and Bach um, hadn't existed. Thomas Arne would have probably been one of the greatest composers in the 18th century. But, you know, he's just completely outweighed by those giants. Mm. Um, And, of course, through the 19th century, you know, if Mendelssohn hadn't been around, probably Sterndale Bennett would have Mm -hmm. been a very great composer. But these 
it, it, it was all just all comparative. And I think it's systems of mm-hmm. support, too. Yeah. In, in Britain, unlike some of the places on the continent, they didn't have this kind of established system of patronage. So I mentioned Charles II. He was broke. He was being subsidized by his cousin Louis XIV under the table um, because he mm. could not afford stuff. And so there's no way that he could afford to subsidize opera in the way that his cousin could. And so there wasn't this kind of operatic infrastructure in England which means that even great composers like Arne, he was constantly struggling in the theater to make a go of it. Mm. And so, you know, it was it was this situation where there wasn't this consistent support, um, financial support. So the economics in England couldn't work out because opera is super expensive to put mm. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, still, that's still, still is. <laughs> still is. Ticket sales don't come close to... Nope. to and they uh, didn't then either. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's uh, take a break. Uh, We'll have more. We're uh, talking uh, with uh, Nicholas Kramer, one of the uh, leading interpreters of uh, this uh, kind of music working today. He's been brought in as special musical director for these performances of Dido and Aeneas. And uh, we're also talking with Amanda Eubanks-Winkler. She is one of the leading scholars of 17th century English musical drama. And uh, she is uh, a professor at uh, Syracuse University and a leading personal scholar. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like to uh, a couple of ways. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Today's program is part of USU's Year of the Arts. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU King College presenting Dido and Aeneas, the first English opera composed in 1688, tells the story of Dido, Queen of Carthage, and the Trojan prince Aeneas, April 19th and 20th at 7.30 p.m. and April 21st at 2 p.m. Details at cca.usu.edu. This week on Radiolab, ladies and gentlemen, stress. They're out to get you. They're out to get you preferentially. It's really horrible. And this is a really, really hostile world. It feels like somebody's, you know, strangling you from the inside. These kids should not see this. You should hide their eyes. It's got a really nervous prison in your head. (laughs) Right now, this is no time to worry about ovulating. This is no time to digest breakfast. But it is time for Radiolab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Ask Me Another is the first of our two all-celebrity shows in Los Angeles with Darcy Carden, Brett Gelman, Missy Pyle, and Paul Shear, who fondly remembers his early days of improv comedy. I remember doing a show for one person, <laughs> and then we decided we would chase him out. <laughs> so join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. That is music from the uh, 1680s, uh, reaching back to the 17th century. That's the overture, part of the overture to Dido and Aeneas, uh, the great opera of uh, Henry Purcell. We're talking about Purcell, Dido and Aeneas. We'll get into talking about related topics and perhaps unrelated topics as we as we go along. We have uh, Nicholas Kramer with us. He is a leading uh, conductor around the world. He's been brought in as a special musical director for these performances. And Amanda Eubanks-Winkler is one of uh, the leading scholars of 17th century English musical drama. She's a personal scholar and uh, a professor at Syracuse University. She's giving pre-concert uh, talks. And those performances, if you're interested in uh, in hearing uh, and seeing Dido and Aeneas, that is uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thursday and Friday performances at 7.30 p.m. and a Saturday performance at 2 p.m. All those in the Morgan Theater on the USU Logan campus. And uh, this program is a part of USU's Year of the Arts. These performances as well. Uh, this has been designated as Utah State University's Year of the Arts. Uh, so I promised before the break, Nicholas Kramer, that uh, we'd, uh, I'd ask you to tell me about coming in. This is not your group that you've prepared over months and years. Uh, you come in, and uh, I think these are mostly students performing? Uh, they're all students. All students performing. Um, um, so you, you come in, and you have, I don't know how long you have to prepare them. Um, well, not very much. <clears throat> they were extremely well prepared, pre-prepared by the the staff here. Um, when I say they're all students, um, we have a professional theorist um, 
uh, that uh, lute player. So um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, uh, apart from that, of course, there's a professional director as well, and and um, but the the students um, and it's. I mean, I you know, we were talking about Josiah Priest School. I mean, this is just so appropriate that we're we've got kids. I'm sorry to say, students who are a little bit older than than uh, the first performance. We th- you know the the presumed first performance of Dido and Aeneas in the 17th century because they were all schoolgirls. We have students here who are about sort of, what, between 19 and 22, 23. But it's incredibly um, well suited to this age group. There is is nothing that... that any of them can't sing. I'm sorry about all these double negatives, but it's, it's a perfect piece for this age group um, in a way that, you know, of course, students attempt handle operas and uh, Bach cantatas even, uh, which are in much, much harder and much, much less appropriate in that way, even though, because you have to have star singers for that. In this, you have to have really, uh, you know, good musicians. Um, and this is what we have. Uh, I was delighted to go through it the first, for, for the first time, what, a couple of weeks ago, and to find that, you know, they just sort of related to it in a way that, and of course there's no, it's no wonder because it was written for this sort of, this sort of voice. Mm-hmm. Later on, opera will develop into, you know, the star star power, right? Sure. The, the, Mm. You you show off, um, mm-hmm. but at this point it's yeah. very, it was very direct. There's no showing off here. Yeah. You're mm. absolutely right. It's 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 completely uh, aimed at the drama, uh, at um, and of course you can, you know you you have to think the part. You have to think about what you're singing. I mean you do in every opera, but somehow in the 17th century particularly. Um, you know, I would say in, the, in sort of the Monteverdi Cavalli tradition, you have to really, you, you have to think about what you're singing more than you would do in a Handel opera because mm-hmm. um, it, it's just it, it's so um, spontaneous. It's it's so much from inside, and there's mm-hmm. so little um, there's so little sort of uh, distraction mm. in, in in the sort of uh, libretto. Um, it's all very straightforward and easily understandable mm-hmm. and easily relatable too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just uh, following up on uh, on preparation of young people, I was very interested to. I just I just googled Nicholas Kramer as you know interviewers are, are wont to do, and uh, up popped an article that you wrote for the Guardian newspaper on uh, Venezuela's El Sistema. You've you've had if I read it correctly you've. You've you've uh, gone over, yeah. I, I have conducted to performances. Play this down um, yeah. <clears throat> a, a bit. Um, I was introduced in the what uh, ten years ago, eleven years ago, to the to the system sistema in Venezuela, and I went um, and performed with this unbelievable group of musicians um, and I went I went again the following year actually and it was it was something that I will never ever forget the sort of um, I mean you get this with students I work a lot with students and with young people who are just hungry to be to be sort of led and gui- guided through uh, various musical styles, and of course, the Sistema had very little in in terms of early music. Um, when I went, uh, there was it's it's mostly a big orchestral uh, pro- uh, program. Mm. So, um, but of course, they can all play, and <laughs> this is this was absolutely wonderful. I did, um, you know, the fireworks music of Handel. Um, I did some Telemann, you know, tricky. Tricky stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and I did uh, Handel's Dixit Dominus as well, which is impossible. I mean, it's chorally very, very hard to sing. But there was, you know, no challenge was too much for them. Um, unfortunately, in the last years, I, I would have e- happily gone back, but the the sort of system, the system, <laughs> system, sort of broke down in terms of 
bringing um, bringing people in from other countries. Okay. Um, but it, it's still going, and mm. of course, uh, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra, which was, you know, the which was a youth orchestra is now a symphony orchestra, mm. and uh, Dudamel has has this takes this country all over the world so it, it is still flying the flag but it, i mean nobody can go into venezuela now so it's, yeah uh, the political situation yes yeah. it's just yeah. too difficult yeah uh so i want to follow up a little bit this this seemed i mean it's it it seems wildly successful you, you and and nothing but good right taking kids getting them yeah, it, in, uh, into the system, and and they're able to explore their talents. And uh, well, it spawned um, a, f- a, f- a few uh, projects around the world, and particularly in the UK, um, we've got uh, there was one in England, uh, headed by Julian Lloyd Webber, um, but uh, actually more significantly, there's one in Scotland, um, f- uh, done by Richard Holloway, whose um, whose energies are boundless and. Um, although we don't hear this, hear so much about it, it's absolutely going. It's going well, uh, from what I can gather. So it is transferable. Oh, absolutely! Okay. You yeah. just have to have the dedication. Uh, you also have to. I mean, <laughs> the school system is such that if you try to, uh, if you try to uh, trans- transfer it to. Uh, a normal school, this this sistema, uh, they'd have a very very long school day because they start. I think they used to start at eight in the morning, do s- schoolwork, and then every afternoon was music until six. Mm-hmm. So I mean, y- you're not going to get that. Um, you're certainly not when when there's uh, so many other distractions like sport and um, that have to be catered for and homework. You know. Yeah. Yeah. To learn stuff. Oh, oh, by the way, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, I want to hear a little bit more from uh, from the Dido and Aeneas. And to set this up, uh, this is going to be alert my producer track uh, ten. If we could hear uh, track ten, um, so Amanda Eubanks Winkler, wonder if you could set this up a little bit. Sure. So, what you're going to hear is the beginning of Act Two. Um, there's a prelude. I think is is are we going to play the yeah, prelude as well? I think so. So the prelude is in the unusual key for this period of F minor. So already Purcell's signaling that this is going into a dark place, and the dark place is occupied by these witches. Uh, in the 17th century in England, they really loved witches. <laughs> they enjoyed putting witches on stage. Just think Macbeth, right? Mm. Um, and so they put witches centrally in the story as the antagonists against the lovers that is Dido and Aeneas and they do all sorts of nasty horrible things to try to separate these lovers so this is their introduction these nasty creatures the witches the sorceress and her merry band and uh, in this recording the uh, sorceress is uh, Susan Bickley this is uh, St. James Singers St. James Baroque Players Ivor Bolton uh, conducting this from the beginning of act two of uh, Purcell's Dido and Aeneas
So there is a beginning of Act 2. We have uh, the Sorceress Wayward Sisters and then the uh, chorus Harms Our Delight, which is, I guess, what witches would sing, right? Uh, yeah, they're always excited about yeah. doing bad things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what, 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 what was it about witches that uh, people, some at least composers, like to put them on stage? Well, it goes back to the early 17th century, and in the mask tradition, sometimes witches, um, there were two parts of the court mask. There was the regular mask, and there was the anti-mask. And in the anti-mask, this is where all the baddies reside, so the bad guys, witches, um, or disruptive characters like drunken sailors, they all turn up in the anti-mask, and they disrupt the beautiful harmony of the kingdom in bad ways. So there's this long legacy, and then it creeps on to the public stage via works like Macbeth. Um, And there's loads and loads of witch plays. By the time you get to the 17th century, some of the witch plays in England had taken on a new, rather nasty resonance um, because witchcraft was starting to be conflated with Catholicism in late 17th century England. And so there's some witch plays from the late 17th century around the same time as Dido that are conflating um, witches with Catholics. Um, And in part, this is because of the political situation in England at the time. Um, James II, who was the monarch that came after Charles II, he actually had, he was Catholic, and he was gotten rid of because of his religion. Um, And William and Mary in the Glorious Revolution came in um, directly thereafter. So it was a time of tremendous religious conflict. Um, But I think more than that, um, maybe there was some kind of political resonance, but they're entertaining. People go to the theater to be entertained, and people always like the villain. They like the bad Mm -hmm. guy. Um, And they were entertaining characters that people um, enjoyed seeing. People like watching people on stage behaving badly. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's fun. And so they're not that much different than people today. Yeah, I guess you 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 get to live it vicariously. You can't you don't feel like you can do it in your real life, but you can watch these. Right, characters. you can't be a witch in your real life, right, but right. you can go and do yeah. that and watch them on stage. Um, we we're mentioning uh, during the break that um, it was it was often men. Men were men would play the witches at least in public performances. Yeah, so this is a strange little quirk of uh, English theatrical history. So. Um, After 1660, women were allowed to perform on the public stage. So you might well think, well, when they did Macbeth, for example, after 1660, the role of Hecate would have been played by a woman, one of these actresses. But in fact, they retained the older tradition from the early 17th century, which was an all-male theater in England, and the role of Hecate was performed by a man. Um, and, uh, And this actually happened on the public stage with Dido as well. So in 1700, um, they chopped up Dido into pieces, and they stuffed it into a revised version of Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. Just contemplate that for a moment. (laughs) And then what they did is we know that they cast the role in accordance with the tradition on the public stage of the sorceress as um, a man. So a Mr. Wiltshire played it in 1700. And he also took the role of the drunken sailor at the beginning of Act Three and sang Come Away, Fellow Sailors as well. So he did both. He did both parts. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'd like to take another break. Then uh, when we come back, I want to maybe... Rove a little farther afield. I want to uh, talk with you, Amanda Eubanks Winkler, about your work with uh, the history of uh, restoration performances of, of Shakespeare. Yeah. This is essentially people thinking, okay, that's t- too old fashioned. We're going to update Shakespeare, which is <laughs> an exactly anathema it. today, right? But, uh, and, uh, and, and so we'll talk about some other things as well. We have with us uh, acclaimed conductor uh, Nicholas Kramer and Amanda Eubanks Winkler, who's professor at uh, Syracuse University. And uh, this program is a part of USU's Year of the Arts. There are performances of Dido and Aeneas upcoming. And uh, Nicholas Kramer is uh, special music uh, musical director for those performances. Amanda Eubanks-Winkler will be giving pre-concert talks. And uh, those performances are Thursday and Friday at 7.30 p.m. and Saturday at 2 p.m. in the Morgan Theater on the USU campus. More following this. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Department of Art and Design presenting Shayla Bridges, New York-based interior designer. Public lecture Thursday, April 19th at 5 p.m. in the Kane Performance Hall. Details at yearoftheartsusuedu slash events. For the next Budamaya World Music Hour, we'll travel to Haiti, where French and African cultures blend to create a fascinating palette of musical styles. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Haiti, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Join me on the Thistle and Shamrock this week for a timeless collection spanning the vinyl and digital ages. It's the music you've been waiting for all week. Join us Friday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cash Valley company building precision sensors that support global research and sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, roughly 70% of Americans are financially illiterate. How do I save for retirement? How do I deal with all these questions about budgeting and when to buy a house and all this kind of stuff? Everything you always wanted to know about money but were afraid to ask, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. There's a portion of the Echo Dance of the Furies. That's from the end of, uh, or the end of scene one, act two, from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. We've been talking about that opera. It'll be performed on the USU campus Thursday and Friday, 7.30 p.m. this week, and uh, Saturday, 2 p.m. in the Morgan Theater of the USU uh, campus in Logan. And uh, we are talking uh, about related topics with the special musical director, acclaimed conductor Nicholas Kramer and with Amanda Eubanks-Winkler, who is a personal scholar and a Syracuse University professor, and she's giving pre-concert talks ahead of those uh, performances. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Nicholas Kramer, I want to, uh, in this last segment, uh, talk a little bit about um, when Baroque music, when classical music is used maybe in more popular culture, and I, I'm reading in your your bio, hopefully this is correct, you were the Baroque consultant for The Madness of King George. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Uh, again, it, you know, it, in the film world, it, it, things tend to get sort of slightly mis, mistitled. Um, I was the harpsichordist on it, and also I conducted um, some bits, actually mainly the outgoing titles of Zadok the Priest. Um, I'm a, one of my best friends is George Fenton, who, who did the music for that. And uh, we, we sort of talked about it together and about what, what he would include uh, in the film. And I actually also played the harpsichord at the bit where George III is playing it when he can't play it. And that was one of the most interesting things. I had to play wrong notes all over the place. Oh, you did? Yes. Um, and <laughs> how, did that, how did that go? How did that, that, that must have pained you? It was about one o'clock in the morning, I remember, at the EMI studios. And we were sort of, uh, Nick Heitner was sitting there saying, no, yeah, there's, a, there's a bit there that his hands his hands down there on the left and you have to just throw your hand down some of the notes. And it was just, it, it was just so much fun. Mm. Um, but it was serious, too. It was serious work. Yeah. Um, so I can't claim to be really too much, uh, too much involved <laughs> in that. But I love working for film. I had, I also played on Les, Les Liaisons Dangereuses and oh, okay. stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's it that that comes sort of once every five years. So yeah. um, right. it's a bit of a novelty for me. Do you, uh, you and George Fenton, of course, George Fenton, uh, well known in the uh, the film film world, uh, wonderful. Uh, composer and uh, an arranger for films. Uh, do you talk about that process with him? 
Not so much. I mean, he's he's very very busy still, um, and doing things other than uh, baroque music. So you know, I'm not so involved in the, in, in in his other. Uh, but he he's uh, you know, I see him every every now and again. We talk about what we've been doing, and mm-hmm. he, he has a quite an interesting life. Yeah, Matt, you being Swinkler had a, a kind of a similar thing uh, with you. Um, you, you have a, I think, a book or at least a paper called "From Purcell to Lloyd Webber." Oh, right. <laughs> that, that's a sweep, right? That's... Well, it's it's a research area that I've done, and I actually have a um, class that I teach at Syracuse, which is English opera, Purcell to Lloyd Webber. So, opera playing fast and loose mm-hmm. with what that is, right? But we end with Phantom of the Opera. Um, I've written actually on Lloyd Webber as well because if you work on anything that's Baroque. Um, It's incredibly lavish and full of special effects, some of these Baroque operas. And uh, there's a similar aesthetic at play (laughs) with Mm. the chandeliers coming down or in, you know, the mega musical Miss Saigon, which isn't by Lloyd Webber, but the helicopter that appears. So uh, I got interested in Lloyd Webber when I was quite young and uh, and have written some things about him, not necessarily about the music, but more reception history of Lloyd Webber. There would be some who would say, okay, Lloyd Webber, lower brow and uh, personal high, high brow, you know, <laughs> would, would have that attitude. I don't know what you... Yeah, for sure. Heard. On um, the other hand, I'm you get omnivore. students in with Lloyd Webber and you can take them back to Purcell, I imagine. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, and so if you place things in a long historical context, and I think it's valuable. And uh, some of the, Purcell wrote popular music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sure did. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And he wrote music that was really popular, that was really appealing. He wrote catches that yeah. to our modern sensibility, you know, even today, they're really kind of spicy, mm-hmm. shall we say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he he wrote all different kinds of music. So we're talking today about his operatic output, but he wrote a lot of mm-hmm. different kinds of things because um, he also had to make a living. Um, and musical theater in England has always been um, a commercial concern. Mm. And uh, so Lloyd Webber is kind of the arch representative right, of that. Right. And so from a historical perspective, I find him a fascinating figure. Yeah. And Nicholas Kramer, um, I, I suppose what we what we hold in the canon today, a lot of it was, uh, you know, composed to, to make money and composed as a popular music and yeah, it wasn't composed to okay. I'm going to be in the canon, right? No, I mean, I mean, it's well known that Handel was a great businessman, and uh, he he sorted out his. He knew what he was doing. He knew when opera was declining, and he started to write oratorios. So um, there was no sort of he wasn't in his ivory tower by any means, uh, writing for his soul. Yeah. He was writing for money. Right. Mm-hmm. We just have uh, about one minute left, Amanda Eubanks Weekler. Maybe you could do the one minute version of uh, restoration performances <laughs> of, of Shakespeare. <laughs> Interesting topic. We could do another another hour on this. Yeah. Well, I started working, I, I've been working on this on and off for many, many years, but I began working on it in earnest in 2014 um, when we did workshop performances with my collaborator, Richard Schuck. He's a theater historian at the Folger Shakespeare Library. They'd asked us to come in. They knew we both had performance background, and so we started staged some of these things. We did um, the restoration version of Macbeth and Measure for Measure, and we are part of this ongoing project 2017 through 2020 in partnership with the Folger Theater um, and Shakespeare's Globe and the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, as well as Syracuse University and Queens University, Belfast. What we're doing is we're staging these really strange things where in the restoration that is post-1660, they thought Shakespeare was old and boring and old-fashioned, and so they updated the language, they added new characters, King Lear famously got a happy ending. Um, (laughs) So they did all kinds of strange things, but it just shows that Shakespeare didn't occupy this um, uh, exalted position within their imagination and the way he does for us today, and they had no qualms about adapting him and playing with him and playing with his language, Mm -hmm. um, which we would find absolutely anathema, right? Playing with this beautiful language. And so, and not only that, they inserted all of these musical scenes and singing and dancing and special effects to jazz it up. (laughs) Mm. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, uh, but uh, we appreciate uh, very much 
Uh, let's see. We have an email. Let's put this in at the end. This is from, from Mon. He says, thanks for this wonderful program this morning. It's like attending a mini course on 17th century musical theater. I'm down in St. George and so can't attend the performance, but I'll be putting out my recording of Dido as soon as the program is over and listening to it with new ears. Uh, thank you, Mon, for that. Appreciate that. Uh, so we have with us uh, conductor Nicholas Kramer, who's the special musical director for these performances. So thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And uh, Syracuse University professor Amanda Eubanks-Winkler is giving pre-concert uh, talks. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And the performances are Thursday and Friday at 7.30, Saturday at 2 o'clock this week um, on the USU campus Morgan Theater. And uh, thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.